Good morning. I don't think we, they could hear you at home. Good morning. Good morning. So, we're finally back for all of those who are able to join us on live stream and um, wherever you may be watching. Uh, we get to be here socially distanced appropriately, but get to be here together finally uh, for the first Sunday in many, um, many, many weeks. And so we're thankful for that, thankful that we're able to gather back together. Glad to see everybody. Um, glad that we've been able to sing and pray together. If we can, we're going to open up our Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Um, we're going to pick back up in what we're calling the Radical Grace series, um, looking at how God's radical grace affects our lives, changes our lives, and how it calls us to live a radical life that's so different from the life we were living before and so different from um, how the world would perceive, even sometimes how our traditions, even in Christianity, would perceive. Um, it's a very hard thing when you are commanded to love your enemy, but that's the essence of what it means to follow Christ. So um, we, we've been stressing over the last several sermons that it's really about truly doing what Christ has commanded us to do and staying away from that habit to devolve into just religious traditions. Um, you know, we've thrown out the phrase cultural Christianity and how that is pervasive in today's time. Um, Christianity has become so just part of the culture, especially in the South, um, that uh, you can get into a habit of Christianity, a habit of church, a habit of doing these things and the practices and the ceremonies and things that go along with it. And it's just that that's a habit to us. But worse than that is when we get into the idea that those things are the things that actually justify us and we push Christ to the back burner or like they did in the Galatian church, they were really trying to push Christ completely out of the scene, off the cross and out of the way and getting circumcision and the law back to, to, to the forefront of their uh, religion. And so that's where we have been deep diving for the last several weeks. So we're going to turn back to Galatians chapter 5 and kind of press on. If we can, we're going to uh, pray really quickly to um, ask that the Holy Spirit would come and be with us as we open His Word. So uh, bow with me. Father, we pray again that You would be with us here, that You would bless us as we try to open Your Word and to preach, and that, God, You would guide with Your Holy Spirit the message um, and guide us in Your Word that we may see Your truth in it and that we may live by it and that ultimately, ultimately we would give you glory in it. And we ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So Galatians chapter 5, where we kind of left off last time, was around verse 16, and there it says, This I say then. Remember, he ended off saying, This is what happens if you're taking confidence in the flesh. This is what happens if you're trusting in yourself. This is what happens when you start putting your practices as your justifier ahead of Christ. He says, you will ultimately fall into biting and devouring one another. And he says, take heed that you do not be consumed one of another. That's verse 15. Right before that, he says, all the law is fulfilled in this one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
He's going to continue this argument about the law and what the fulfillment of the law looks like. He's going to continue to kind of press on, you're over here focusing on this circumcision aspect of the law. You're focusing on this thing that you can do to justify yourselves and feel better about yourselves and your religious practices and all these things. He says, but I want to tell you guys that what Christ said was the totality of the law was to love God and love your neighbor. It says, you're worrying about circumcision, which has nothing to do with those two commandments. And Christ himself, our great master, said, these two are the complete summation of the law. He says, but if you start falling back into self-justification by circumcision, by religious practices, by whatever, then ultimately it's going to lead to some of these things he's going to talk about. And he says, and ultimately it'll lead to you biting and devouring one another. And what I think is funny is because that's so applicable today. That is so applicable today especially amongst Christians. Then we start looking at each other and comparing one another and going, who's got the greatest, best, who's right, who's wrong, and we just start biting and devouring one another. And ultimately, we all become ineffective. You know, people will kind of get off on tangents about how the devil may be affecting the church. And some people feel it's, you know, oh, he's corrupting the versions of the Bible and that's where our greatest problem is. And he's doing this and he's doing that and culturally he's invading the church. And there's obviously flavors of truth in all of that. I think the greatest, the greatest attack the devil has ever done on the church is to divide us into about 150 to 200 denominations. And we're all divided into our subgroups where we're all biting one another and fighting and devouring one another. Guess what we're not doing? Anything against him. Anything against what he's doing. We're not furthering the kingdom. We're furthering ourselves. So the greatest thing Sun Tzu's art of war would tell you is all you got to do is divide and conquer. Well, we've done a pretty good job dividing ourselves. He says, and if you bite and devour one another, you're going to be consumed by one another. And ultimately, if you're consumed by one another, you're no longer serving the purpose that God has called you here to do. So then he goes on, and we've heard these last verses of chapter 5 a billion times. And again, we kind of talked about how it's interesting to me, and I'll be honest, this is probably one of my first read-throughs where I've really gotten Galatians in context, okay? There's a lot of things in here, a lot of things that you can carefully and rightly pull out of the context of the letter, okay, to teach principles, okay? So when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, obviously you can pull those out and you can set them as a standalone and you can teach from those things. Many, many different ideas. But it has been mind-blowing to me to kind of grasp, at least in my understanding, the context of the whole book, what Paul's been preaching on for five chapters, and then he brings up these fruits of the flesh and fruits of the Spirit. Because he's not just giving you a theological principle about things we already know about the flesh or the Spirit. He's not giving you an argument against some of the arguments that we come up with when we read these things. He's also not just pushing a list of what moral and immoral actions are. He's got a purpose behind this. His purpose has been the same purpose he's been preaching on for the last five chapters and will continue to preach on, which is Christ died to justify you. Christ alone did that. He did it through faith. We inherited it through faith. 
but it's all Christ. It's not your works. The law is all your works. And the law is based on you, and it justifies you by you, through you, and ultimately it ends with you. And ultimately it does not get you anywhere as far as justification in the eyes of God. You'll feel really good about yourself, but you are no more closer to God than you were when you didn't have the law. Beyond that, he's also been teaching, you didn't start this way, Gentile church at Galatia. You started by faith. You didn't have the law. You weren't being circumcised. You weren't keeping kosher. You weren't doing any of that. And yet you received the Spirit. You were saved. You were delivered. You were transformed. You were changed. You were living a life. You were doing miracles. I mean, lots of things were going on with you, and now you've kind of drifted back to this selfishness, this self-justification because of these false teaching Jews who came up from Jerusalem telling you, no, you have to be circumcised. Forget about Christ. Move him out of the picture. The cross is offensive. Look how much trouble it's gotten you into. Get back to circumcision. Nobody gives a fuss about circumcision. Nobody's attacking you over keeping kosher. Don't you want to be with the cool guys who aren't getting crucified because you're preaching crucifixion? Come on and join us. Just be circumcised. Keep kosher. Don't touch. Spread apart. Do these things. Whatever you want to do. So Paul has been going through this the whole time. And finally, Paul gets to this point where he goes, Now let me tell you about what are the fruit of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. In the context of how Christ has delivered us from these natural elements, these principles of religious tradition, these things like Judaism, that he says, you've been delivered from all this self-justification mumbo-jumbo. You've been delivered from all of these trappings of traditionalism and the weights and the burdens of laws and religious principles that you can't keep. He says, you've been completely set free from that through faith. And as, Christ, as Paul said, you know, I was delivered from that. I was a Jew, and that's why I believed on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Because number one, as a Jew, I recognized the law couldn't justify me. And number two, I recognized that Christ had set me free from all that. So I let go of my law, let go of the self-justification, and I clung to Jesus Christ alone as the source of my justification. So in that, he goes on to then talk about these fruit of these two different spirits. So he says in verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So what he's comparing is what he's just concluded there. When you're walking after the, the flesh, you're walking after self-justification by your religious practices. When you're walking after those things, it's going to lead you to lust, adultery, uncleanness, fornication, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variances, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies. Another way of saying that is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, Notice how those big topics are right there in the middle. He says, walk after the Spirit. If you're walking after the Spirit, that same Spirit that by faith has done all these things that have already been working in your life up until this point, just walk in that. 
And if you're walking in that, you will avoid these other things that come from the flesh. So he's given this kind of dichotomy you have here. If you feed the flesh and the things that the flesh lusts after, which is envy, conceit, deceitfulness, fits of anger, jealousy, those things, if you pour fuel into that fire, guess what? Those things are going to be manifested and you're going to be devouring one another and be consumed. He said, instead, walk in the Spirit, that same Spirit that's already been working in you, that same Spirit that's already blessed you, same Spirit that through faith has already changed you, has already moved you, has already guided you, that you've already been walking after. Pour fuel into that fire. But notice how he lists these works of the flesh, these works of the Spirit of the flesh says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And that's a warring kind of idea that the things that the spirit desires are different than the things that flesh desires. That's what he's talking about there with lusting. He's saying the things that the flesh lusts after are contrary and opposite, polar opposites to the things that the spirit lusts or desires. Okay, So he's giving you the picture that the things of the will of the spirit are going to be different from the things of the will of the flesh. They're contrary. They don't work together. They're two things that are not compatible like we talked before, like oil and water, like serving God and money, you can't. It's one or the other. You're going to love one, you're going to feed one, you're going to take care of one or the other. It's not compatible. The grass is not equally as green on both sides, and you can't ride on the fence. He says they lust or they desire opposite things so that you cannot do the things that you would. If you are being led by the Spirit, you will not be being led by the flesh. If you're being led by the flesh, you're not being led by the Spirit. And while you're being led by the flesh, you're not going to be doing the things you would want to be doing under the Spirit. That's what he's getting at. That should be a stark reminder to us, especially in the context of what he's talking about. He says, you cannot be preaching and pursuing a Holy Spirit faith-based lifestyle if you are feeding these fleshly, self-justifying religious traditions. That's what he's getting at. You can't be throwing self-justification on the fire through circumcision and keeping of the law and you know showing up on Sunday and not cussing and watching R-rated movies and you thinking, that's what justifies me. You got to be following the Spirit. The Spirit leans on Christ. The Spirit leads to Christ as your justifier. Faith drives you to Christ as your justifier. But you can't mix both. So if we as a church body or believers start trying to spin back to it's all about the traditions and the practices and that's what makes you who you are or justifies you, then guess what? We are not being led by the Spirit. We're feeding the flesh. So that we can all leave here and just feel really good about ourselves. Well, I go to church more than you do. Well, I read the right Bible. Well, I was baptized. Well, I give every Sunday. Well, I, whatever the things are that you want to check box and say, see, look, how good I am doing. If we're not leaning on Christ, then all that stuff doesn't matter. In fact, it's argued that that stuff is actually just serving the flesh. And if you're serving the flesh, you're serving contrary to the Spirit. Instead, what Paul is trying to teach the church of Galatia and what I want us, and the reason why we get on this, why we have harped on this for probably lack of a better term, is it is so soul-crushing. 
to fall on yourself for self-justification. If you think the sum total of your existence that Christ died for and gave his life for was for you to just exist on a pew on a Sunday morning, you're not even in the batting cage at this point. You're nowhere in the game. You have weakened and diminished the entire awesome blood-bought life that Christ has given for you. So that's not the sum total. That's not the keeping up of the tradition. That's not what he died for us for. In fact, he says, I died to kind of release you from all of these burdens. I died to set you free from all this. So just through faith, you could believe in me, rest in me, and glorify me. And that you would work out faith through love. And that through love, you would love other people, you would love your neighbor, you would love your brothers and sisters in Christ, you would love your mommies and daddies, you would love your kids, you would love God first and foremost. And that that love is going to come out in action. Now this is what James in his book just goes to town on in, in chapter 2 about faith and how it works itself out. That you, you can't show me you have faith unless you're showing me you have faith. This doesn't make sense. You can't say, as James argues, you can't say you have faith and not have works that back it up. Oh, well, I have faith. No, well, show me you do. My favorite kind of analogy that I use with that over and over again, you say you believe that you can fly. Well, I'm not going to believe that you really believe that until you get up on a building and take a jump. You got to show me something. Say it all day. That's not the, as, what is the phrase? Talk is cheap. Say it all day you want to. No, I believe I can fly. Well, show me, brother. Hop up there. Take a jump. Pull a buzz. Dive. Show me you believe what you say you believe. Otherwise, quit saying it. Same thing with us as Christians. We've got to come up to the batter's box. We've got to get to the plate. We actually have to show that we believe what we say we believe, right? <laughs> All you got to do is bring up Buzz Lightyear. That just, everybody's zeroed in now. So the context of what he's talking about here, look at how he lists these works of the flesh out. Because here's the thing that we like to do. We love to jump on the juicy sins here, right? We love to jump on the sins that are the most provocative, the most out there, the ones that really you can just rake people over the coals over we've got adultery we've got fornication we've got all these things there's drunkenness there's idolatry there's all these impurities homosexuality things like that pornography those kind of things fall under all this those are the big five or whatever that we stick to the front and say these are the things that will kill you kill your marriage kill your life these, this is what's wrong with the world. This is what's getting us. But notice how Paul doesn't just stop with those. That's not necessarily what the problem is here at Galatia. That's not necessarily what he's addressing. He's not writing to a church and saying, Guys, y'all have gotten your whole morality compass regarding sex or whatever completely way off. 
He saved that letter for the church at Corinth, you know. He, you know, at Galatia, that wasn't what he was talking to them about. He does list it there. He says, look, you're going to see these things. When you see these things, these are works of the flesh. They're not the works of the Spirit. You see a husband or a wife cheating on their husband or wife, guess what? That's not the Spirit. That's the flesh. That is selfishness. That is self-centeredness. And that's why that happens. You see idolatry? In this case, you could really tie that into what the Jews were doing here. You want to see idolatry? Then get back to saying that there's a religious practice like circumcision that is the only way that you can be justified. Ergo, forget Christ, forget the cross, focus on yourself. It's selfishness. Idolatry is selfishness. It's all about you feeling good about yourself. Adultery, sexual immorality, all those things are about selfishness. But you know what? He doesn't stop there with the big five, the juicy sins, the ones that everybody wants to preach on on a Sunday morning. He then does the deep dive into the sins we don't want to talk about because they are so much a part of our reality. Envy, jealousy, strife. Fits of anger, which I have never been guilty of, but I know my kids are. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. Nobody wants to talk about that. Why? Because that's our makeup. That's who we are. We want to be able to lash out. We do envy people. We are jealous of this group. We do like divisions because in divisions, we can establish ourselves as right and you all as wrong, right? Everybody follow with that? <laughs> Who's at the center of all that? You are. I am. Who's at the center of my envy? Well, I am. Who's at the center of my jealousy? Who's at the center of my anger? Who's at the center of my division? Why am I divided? I'm not, look, the South did not secede from the Union because they thought the North was right. And they were self-sacrificially breaking away because they realized their error and were going into bondage. That, that's not what they did it for. They broke away because they thought they were right. The North stayed the same because they thought they were right. They ultimately went to war over that. Why? Because both of them thought they were right and they were fighting for the cause that they felt was right at that time. So who ultimately was at the center of those divisions? Each group of individuals who both thought they were right and were doing what they felt was best for them. That's where this selfishness, self-centeredness plays out in all of these things. When you're getting back to doing circumcision as the means of your justification, guess who is at the center of that? Well, you are. There's nobody else involved. I mean, we're not going to get too graphic, but let's be honest. It's not a publicly displayed Faith, or a display of, of faith, it's, not, it's, it's hidden, it's closed, it's covered. Who's going to know you're justified? Well, I am. I did it to myself. Now I can go around and brag and say, yeah, I'm circumcised. I'm part of that crew of people who keep the law. And then you Gentiles over here who haven't been circumcised yet, guess what? If you don't get circumcised, you're not in. You're not part of the crowd. There's the division. He's already warned them about this back in chapter 4. He said, they're provoking you to jealousy. They're provoking you in this way. It's good to be provoked and be zealous over a good thing, but that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because they want to make a show of you. They want to walk into your church and they want to say, we are circumcised and keep the law. 
You are a, still a bunch of dirty Gentiles, no matter what Christ did, no matter what walls he broke down, no matter what status symbols he blew out of the water, you are still dirty Gentiles who don't keep the law. You're looking at us. We're the A-team. We keep the law. We're circumcised. We continue to eat kosher. This is what Peter's issue was. You're hanging out with the Gentiles until the holy Jews come in, and then all of a sudden we're splitting up, we're breaking apart, get away from the Gentiles, separate in the church, get everybody back to where they were before. And Paul said, and I had to call Peter to task for it, because that is not what justifies you. And when Christ justified us and end that and put the kibosh on the whole thing, guess what he did? He said, you know what? No longer Jew or Gentile, Greek or, or Scythian, barbarian, any black, white, Asian, Beatles lovers or AC, whatever, everybody sanctified by the blood of Christ, justified through the cross, they're all the same. So he said, quit making these divisions that are there. It is much harder to look introspectively and address our own institutionalized hypocrisies and idolatries than it is to point out faults and failures of things like idolatry and adultery and sexual immorality and we can rail on Hollywood and we can talk about our politicians and we can do all these things and we can really get together on that. And again, this is this even though we agree on this, okay? Abortion is a horrible, horrible thing in our country. But we have to be careful that we don't just talk about that and ignore our own institutionalized idolatries and hypocrisies. If we are envious, if we are looking to self-justification, if we are doing all these things, but we're looking out and go, yeah, but don't, don't look at us, don't look at us, don't look at us. Look over here, look how bad these people are. Look how awful that is. Look at the degradation of the culture. Look at all how society has gone to pot. Look at all these things. Don't look at our own hypocrisies. Factions, dissensions, selfish ambitions. That's got to be on the chopping block too. We have to recognize that, that if we are as a covenanted group of believers participating, encouraging, feeding factions, dissensions, and selfish ambitions, then guess what we are not feeding as a covenanted believing group? The Spirit. So that has to be on the chopping block. We have to put that on our ledger. We have to weigh that out in the balance because Ultimately, we can preach and teach and say all of these things about all the horrific stuff that's going on in our culture, but if we are not addressing the things that are, as I said, institutionalized within us, then we're just we're not following the Spirit. Might as well bring in all the other stuff. Let's just all bring back in religious traditions and all these other things, and let's live by those because we're not living by the Spirit that has set us free. We're back under bondage. So does it sound like Paul is serious about these things? Does it sound like he has a grave warning for this church as he sees it veering away from faith-based, Christ-based justification that frees you from all of this and allows you to freely walk through the Spirit and enjoy the fruit of the Spirit versus 
bondage under a religious tradition system that finds justification in yourself. He's not playing around with this. He doesn't think of it as like an alternative church lifestyle. He doesn't look at it and say, hey, you're going to be all right. You're doing a lot of good religious moral stuff. That's good. In the end, you're not like everybody else because you're doing still some good stuff. Even if you've kind of put Christ out of the way and the cross and, you know, but look how moral you are and how good you are and what you're, you're not like everybody else. I mean, he didn't really say that about the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were pretty good at being moral, right? I mean, man, they're washing those plates, they're cleaning those cups, they've got all this stuff to the nth degree. Yeah, you know, they're murdering Christians, and that kind of goes against one of those big Ten Commandment things, but, you know, overall, they're just some really good, moral, hyper-religious people. Paul is serious about this. Paul is, is, is trying to push them as hard as he can away from falling into a self-made religious self-justification pathway. He said, because you're, going, you're, you're, you're not going to be following Christ anymore. You're not going to be following the Spirit anymore. You're going to be following yourself. And as history would tell us and as... Many, many chapters of the Old Testament would tell us it just doesn't end that well. That way doesn't end that well. You'll wander in a desert for 40 years and then die, never receiving the promise that you were promised to receive. You'll wander away from God and you'll set up your own idols and, you'll do, and, and then ultimately you'll get burned down and go into captivity. Says that's not what Christ died to set us free for. He set us free from captivity, not to re-enter into captivity. He set us free from the traditions and the religious things that would bear us down, that are all man-centric and don't get us anywhere. He set us free from all that. He said, guys, I took care of it all. Like, I took care of all that mess. I took care of all the sacrifice. I took care of all the justification. You're set free. I have unchained you just to live and walk freely in me. So then he goes on and he says, But the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and against such there is no law. Notice the, the circling back around to that. There are no law-based entities, law-based practices, law-based ideas that will give you that on their own or that are contrary or superior to that. He's basically saying there's just the Spirit and the Spirit gives you all this and the Spirit is how you live in this. That through faith, you are inheritors of all of these things. There's no law to replace it. There's no law that will obtain this for you. There is no religious tradition, system, whatever, that you can keep perfectly enough to ever get to this point. The only way you get here is by the Spirit. And the only way you get the Spirit is through Jesus Christ. So, so there's no law that's a, there's no law that's going to obtain this for you. 
If you want these things, if you're going to live by these things, if you're going to feed to these things, he says the only way you can do it is through the Spirit. Which means you got to let go of all the self-justification stuff because it only feeds towards the flesh. So, do you see kind of how this... It's, it's a little different understanding. Like, again, as, as you can pull these out and you can obviously preach many, many independent sermons off of these things, it is remarkable to see it in that context. That, it, that there is a difference between keeping religious practices and following in the Spirit. Do we grab that? There is a difference in true relational prayer with Christ and vain repetitions. Do we understand that? There is a difference of being baptized because that's just what you do in this religious institution versus this is my testimony of submission to Jesus Christ. There's a difference between those two. There were plenty of Old Testament people who were circumcised in Israel who were circumcised because that's just what you did as an Israelite. There's a difference in that and Abraham and, and other leaders of faith who willfully submitted to the laws because they were willfully submitting to God. Think about it. There was, a, there was kind of a context for this within the Jewish system because you had strangers or foreigners who could come into the camps of Israel and become kind of an Israel citizen. There was one stipulation. They had to be circumcised like everybody else. Now let me just tell you what. You got to be committed. <laughs> you got to be committed to this Israel. I mean, this is a small nation. It's not like they had some vast GDP or they had some kind of socialized medicine or something that you want to jump on board with and that was going to make it all worthwhile. It's not like they had a great welfare system or whatever. That's, you had to be kind of devoted to this whole Yahweh Jehovah thing. You had to be devoted to want to be a part of these people. There was something here that drove you to want to be a part of them. And there was a willful submission that was required if you were going to be a part of them. If you're going to be a part of who God called His people, then you had to do something and it was be circumcised. And there was plenty who said... I want to be a part. Let me be circumcised. There's a difference in that and just being circumcised because that's what everybody else was required to do. There's a difference in willful submission and begrudging obedience. There's a difference between heart-based, faith-based submission and recognition to what Christ did for us. I mean, that's what Paul says at the beginning of this. I had done everything. I had done all this law stuff. I had been culturally Jewish, keeping what Christ or what God had commanded us to keep for a thousand years. I have been doing all this. I was circumcised the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin. I kept the law perfect. So, you know, all these things that he lists out. And he says, and when Christ changed me, you know what I did? I submitted to Christ. All that other stuff that would have gotten me a lot of popularity. It did get me a lot of popularity. I had a lot of status in the Jewish cultures. I was a super Jew of the Jews and I had it all. 
I had a future. I had a career. I, had a, I was established. Not only that, but I was a pretty good guy. He says, but when Christ changed me, all goes on the trash pile, submission to Christ. I believed in Christ. I recognized there was no justification in what I was doing. I recognized that Christ was my only means of justification. I believed in Christ. Willful submission. So it makes so much more sense that instead it, 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 it shows us how we can fall into these traps of the flesh while still saying we are Christians. As an organization, as a church, as a believing body. And it's not the big thing. It's not like we're all out here, you know, doing these massive idolatrous, you know, adulterous, whatever things. It's not those things. It's the little things that we often don't pay attention to. It's the envies. It's the strifes. It's the jealousies. It's the divisions. And Christ is looking at you going, guys, y'all are throwing some fuel on the fire and it is not the fire that I kindled in you. Instead, he says, this is the wall. This is the keeping of everything that I have set you free from. Loving God and loving your neighbor. Faith working through love. It was faith working through love that got us where we are. It is faith working through love that sent Christ to the cross. It's faith working through love that borns us again and gives us the Holy Spirit. It's faith working through love that changes us into these new creatures. And then it is commanded of us to work out our faith through love. Loving God, loving our neighbor, loving our enemies, loving our brothers and sisters. I mean, that's just, that's so simple. The law is very, very burdensome. This is pretty simple. You say, well, it's not always simple in its execution. Yeah, I'm sure a 40-year-old guy signing up to get circumcised was not too simple either, okay? But this is simple. Like, we can try to complicate this all we want to, but this is simple. And the, and the reality is, is it's not us trying to figure out how to love, we've been given the equipment to love. He said, I've changed you, I've made you a new creature, and then I gave you all of these tools that come with the Holy Spirit. You've been given long-suffering, so don't tell me you can't bear it. You've been given patience, don't tell me you're impatient. You've been given compassion, don't tell me you don't know how. You've been given mercy, don't tell me you don't know how to forgive. Don't tell me that the amazing, radical grace of Jesus Christ that has created you into a brand new thing was somehow deficient in its execution. Well, you know, kind of like an assembly line. We got 98 out of 100. That's pretty good, right? You're going to have a couple of defects. Don't go the way that we want them to. Oh, screw's missing, something's broken. Not the exact pattern like we created in the beginning. So out of all the rebirths and all of history for all of humanity and future whatever, you know, if we get kind of a 90% Six Sigma scale, whatever it is, if we get what, you know, if we get a good amount, it's sufficient enough. But we understand there's going to be 10% that aren't going to, you know, we born them again, but it was a little imperfectly. We gave them the Holy Spirit, but only got like 7 out of 10. 
I just think Christ and God are a little bit more efficient and effective than General Motors. So when he says, I have borne you again and given you the Holy Spirit and you have compassion, it means you've got it. It's not missing. It's not that when you opened up the box like we so often do at Christmas time and start building things together, we go, whoops, there's some screws that aren't in here that needed to be in here. If you're like me, I just take the table of contents and the whole instruction packet and I set that to the side, okay, because, you know, I can figure this out. It's a child's plaything, all right? I think I can put this together. And then you get to the end and there's some leftover screws and bolts and stuff and you're going, that's just called efficiency, people. They obviously were not needed. If they were needed, they would have been used. And I found that they didn't need to be used. So what I figured out was is that though the engineers who created this thing thought they were purposeful, I realized they weren't. You can make just as good of a product without them, and then you save some. I mean, that's just efficiency. That's, that's how the system works. That's not how God's rebirth situation works, okay? Everything he gave us was necessary and needful and good and right, and he didn't leave some on the shelf and forget about you. Now we do feed them. We do walk in them. We do not always execute them perfectly for sure. That's why sanctification is something that we are constantly being worked on. We're that vine that he's constantly trimming back to produce more fruit. We're that gold that he's throwing back in the fire to burn off some more dross. We're constantly in this process of being worked over for the better. So we're not going to get it right every time. We're not going to always be compassionate. We're going to have moments we look back and go, man, I really should have said that a different way. Man, if I had just taken a step back, maybe taken a breath, not been as aggressive, how I could have handled that situation better. So we're always going to have that, but don't for a minute, if you're a professing, believing person who says they believe that they are born again by the power of Christ and have received the Holy Spirit, then don't think you're ill-equipped. Don't live life like somehow you don't have that ability. I'm just not a patient person. Well, if the Spirit is in you, you technically got it. I mean, you can have that tire pressure gauge in your glove box all day. You may not use it. I know I don't. You know, you just kick it. You know, hey, there's tires looking good. Who cares if it's 30 or 32 PSI? It's not a big deal. 24, you know, wobbles a little bit. Not a big deal. You can have all the tools. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to use them. What Paul is admonishing the Galatians here is use them. Feed them. Walk in them. Who does it? I mean, how many of us don't love goodness? Goodness is good, right? Goodness is awesome. Goodness is something we desire. You've got it through the Holy Spirit. Use it. People will say, well, I just, I need more faith. Well, you've got it. Just use it. Lean into it. I'm not saying it's going to make everything understandable. The phrase that we've used several times in the last few months is, sometimes we are just faithfully existing. And hopefully we are existing faithfully. But faithful existence is just 
can't understand it, don't know why it's going on, can't really see the light at the end of the tunnel, could be a train, could be an escape, not sure, don't know how this is going to go, don't know how I got here, don't know why I'm here, but Lord, I am faithfully existing. Abraham, faithfully existing, died faithfully existing, never got the promise that he was promised. Never received it in its totality. Wasn't sitting in Jerusalem in King David's throne before King David ever existed going, look, God gave me what he said. I left Ur of the Chaldees. I came over here. Here we go. Wham, bam. You're, everything's perfect. Said he lived faithfully, died faithfully. Son after son after son after son after son for 400 years before we finally got to this fruition of what God had promised Abraham. Faithfully existing. That's why he's in Hebrews. That's why he's talked about as being the father of the faithful. That's why Paul has used him as the example here. He believed and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And you are inheritors of the promise by believing through faith in the same way as Abraham did. Faithfully existing in times when our country is in turmoil, when we don't know why we lost our job, when things aren't going the way we thought they would, when we have gone through all the religious stuff and we're really, really good people, but somehow the train is still running off the rails, we still fall back to faithfully existing in Jesus Christ. And you have the ability. You're not deficient in that. You have the ability. How do I have the ability? Because the same spirit that's in Christ, the same spirit that's in Abraham, that same spirit with its truth, with its faithfulness, with its everything is in you. So you've got it. Here's what won't satisfy you. Falling back to religious traditionalism. Because you'll keep coming to church, you'll keep reading the right Bible, you can be baptized a thousand times the right way in running water on a sunny day with the Holy Spirit coming. I mean, you can have all those things happen to you. And if you're looking back to them as being the sole source of your justification and happiness, they're always going to come up short. If you take Christ out of the picture, if you're not relying on Christ and the Holy Spirit, then you're just going to come up short. You're going to go, well, man, I've done all these things. I believed. I said a prayer. I've said the prayer more than once. I did the sign of the cross. I wear a crucifix. I was doused in holy water. I was baptized in the Jordan River by a descendant of John. I mean, I've done all these things. It should count for something. I should feel better. Life should be going better. And then you look around and go, man, life is not going the way that I thought it would. So how useful were all those things? Without Christ, they are useless. Without Christ, baptism doesn't mean anything. There's a lot of Jews who, had, who were baptized. Without Christ, it's nothing. Without Christ, communion and the bread and the wine is nothing. You can have the most Jewish authentic wine possible, an unleavened bread made by Mary's granddaughter herself. It's nothing if Christ is not in there. Right? Have all that stuff. Have it perfection. Say you are the oldest, most traditional, most tied back to the blood of whoever from wherever. It Have the most perfect situation possible. If Christ is not there, it is nothing. Now he continues on in kind of conclusion. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ's, 
have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust. Those affections and lusts fall under the category of envy, strife, divisions, dissensions, arguments, fits of anger, all that fits under that, okay? He's not just talking about like idolatry and fornication. He's talking about those things. He says all that's been crucified. It's dead, just like Christ died. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit and let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another and envying one another, okay? He says that's the difference of how this should be. If you have died with Christ, if you have crucified the flesh, then all those things like envy and strife and all that stuff, that's all dead too. So go walk in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, hopefully you're not going to be engaging in vainglory, which would be selfishness. You're not going to hopefully be provoking one another, run another in anger, strife, attacks, envies, jealousies. And you're obviously not going to be envying one another. So instead, what Paul then contrasts and tells us to is he starts guiding us in this idea of getting away from the self, getting away from the envy, away from the provocations, away from the vainglory, and focusing your attention on everybody else. So then in chapter 6, he says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. That same spirit of meekness is what you got from the spirit. Considering yourself, lest you also would be tempted. Bear you one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let every man prove his own work, and then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. This is always an interesting section of Scripture, and it's always one of those things like rebuke not a fool and then rebuke a fool. You know, you kind of get in these, okay, what are you talking about there, Paul? How are you justifying these two things? How are they working together? In the first verses, you tell us that we're to bear each other's burdens, and then you go on to say that you bear your own burdens. And how do you make that work, Paul? You know, how do you bring those two together? Here's what he highlights first. How does faith working through love look in the body of believers? How does faith working through love look in the body of believers? Radical grace has changed us. Radical grace has given us faith. Radical grace gives us the Holy Spirit. Through that, we are changed new people operating in the Holy Spirit's tools that he has given us. So now, how does the believing body look as it is working out faith through love? He says you're to bear one another's burdens and you are to restore one another when they have gotten out of the way. The restore one another kind of gets back to the heart and central teachings of Christ, especially from Matthew chapter 18. As we said, as we were going through Matthew, and I know a lot of you probably have PTSD from it, but um, as we went through Matthew, remember when we got to 18, Matthew 18 was not some legalistic playbook for how you keep your church rolls clean, okay? Matthew 18 was an admonition by the Lord of the universe to say, 
I have gone a long way with you. I have paid for you. I have left the 90 and 9 that are good and situated, and I have gone through the mountains and the ravines and the briars and, the, and all that. I've gone through all of that to get that one sheep that had gone astray and to drag him back. If I go through all of that for you, you can go through all of that with your brothers and sisters. It's not like, oh, well, I went, and then I got two more people, and we went, and then the church went, and boom, now you are out of the church because we've got to keep our church books clean. Because I just hate to break that to some people. There's no such thing as church books in the Bible. It doesn't exist. So that's not why he wrote 18. He wrote 18 to encourage us to not cut people off that we should have the compassion to our brothers and sisters to go after them. And this is another admonition of that. Don't let people off. Don't say you're uncircumcised. Get out of here, you dirty Gentile. Instead, work with them through faith, love, compassion, and restore one who has gone astray. And that could be months. That could be years. That could be decades. There's no time frame on it. Christ didn't give us a time frame in 18. He didn't say once you have fulfilled step one through three, then you're good. He said, no, go again, go again, go again. And if that doesn't work, take a couple of more. Y'all go five or six times. And if that doesn't work, get everybody involved. Try and try and try again to restore a child of God that has lost his way. That is faith working through love. Selfish self-conceit will work through, yep, you're out, adios, see you later. When you clean yourself right up and you get back justified, you know, come on back in, but... Right now, you're gone. Well, that's selfish, legalistic self-conceit. It's all about me looking good, have everything right. We do things in order. And that's not what Christ commanded us to do. He said, go after them. Here, Paul is saying, go after them. Restore one. It is your biblical mandate within this to restore. And then he also says, and you're to carry each other's burdens. That's how you keep the law by faith through love. He says, these are the keeping of the law. You're talking about circumcision. I'm talking about love. You're talking about selfish practices. I'm talking about love. I'm talking about self-sacrifice. I'm talking about laying down your own desires to restore and get out of your comfort zone and to bear the burdens of your brothers and sisters. Here's the reality. We all have burdens. As he says, everyone's going to carry their own burden. That's not contrary to what he's saying about letting other people help you carry that burden. He's just making the reality. We're all going to be carrying burdens. We all have history. We all have baggage. Paul, of all people, can testify to that. Paul carried around the baggage of his previous life of murdering Christians everywhere he went. Interestingly enough, and I found this to be, you know, again, a remarkable um, statement. You know, Paul, who was the chief of persecutors, the one who had persecuted the church more than anybody, became the chief apostle who you could argue was persecuted more than any other Christian. He became the chief persecutor to the chief persecuted. I mean, even in his job description, he was told, guess what great things you get to suffer for me, Paul? So, I mean, when you look at how this plays out, everybody's got their burdens. But what Paul says is the beauty of the church, the beauty of the body of believers is this. Christ 
has blessed us all to be in the same place through faith that we can bear one another's burdens. You're not in this alone. You're not out there on a limb. That's why the body of the believers is so important. You don't have to go out here. You don't have to be struggling out here on your own. Fall in to the body. Fall into, I mean, how many of you limp when you stub your toe? The toe's the thing that's hurt, but the rest of your body responds appropriately, right? It bears the burden. When you break your ankle, the other side shifts and takes up the slack. That's how our bodies work, and that's what the body of believers is to do as well. Let's bear one another's burdens. Engage in the fact that we are all going to have issues. We all have baggage. None of us is exempt from that. But the beautiful thing that Christ has done for us is he said, but I've put you all in the same place. I've given you all the same spirit. You through faith have all the same tools. And all those tools and giftings that I've given to each individual in this church can all work together to bear up one another no matter what they're going through. And if one of you starts to get off, if one of you starts to go astray, if one of you gets sucked into the trappings of this world, no matter what it is, he says, then guess what? you got a whole team that's going to be there to constantly reintroduce the Spirit-filled love of Christ to hopefully pull you back in and restore you. That's the beauty of what we're a part of. That's how it works out. Not selfish, self-conceited, self-justifying religious practices, but rather faith-based, selfless, self-sacrificing life. Life together as a body of believers. So that's what we're looking at. So hopefully we'll continue through this. Um, as we go forward, I hope God would bless us and help us to work on these things. Um, and that in the coming weeks that we would be thinking on that. Think in your minds. Think in how you are engaging into the Spirit or engaging into the flesh. And then as a body of believers, how are we bearing one another's burdens and seeking after to help one another? Thinking of ways that we can go out and that we can help. Thinking of ways that we can bear up. We know people are struggling with different things. How can we enter into that? I'm thankful that we, you know, as a, as a body of believers, I feel like a lot of us do a great job at that. A lot of us don't do a great job at that. I'm one of them. But there's plenty of people like, you know, I won't name names, but there's plenty of people who go out of their way to drop surprises, help out, do things, knowing that someone's in a strait or having a problem. That's, that's it in action. That's how we do it. Now, now, obviously, there's a lot more to it, and there's a lot of depth in it, and there's some big-time struggles that we have to face that we really need to be facing together. That's what James tells us. Join together. Ask the elders to pray for you. Bear one another's burdens. So there's things we could work on that we could do better at, but understand that you are not in it alone. You're not out there on a limb. You don't have to struggle in, in, in hiding the believers, as they gather together, have covenanted together to bear your burdens. So may God bless us and help us to do that as we go forward in this week. Bow with me. We're going to close out with prayer. Father, again, we thank you so much for blessing us to be here again. Thank you for guiding us as hopefully we were preaching your word and receiving your word. And God, that you would help us to live by it in this coming week. Bless us to 
um, love and show compassion as we're called to, to live out your calling in our lives. Help us to feed the spirit and not the flesh. Help us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law, to love our neighbors and to love you. We thank you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.